This is Anna Venegala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Today we will be talking about William Shakespeare's play Troilus and Cressida, written right. around 1602, right after Hamlet. The story is set in the mm-hmm. last two days of the Trojan War, and the story has an interconnection of two stories, the story of the dissension within Greek camp, where the great warrior Achilles sits in his tent with his lover Patroclus, leaving the war effort hopeless, while the Trojan prince Troilus falls in love with Cressida and pines for her. Troilus eventually consummates his love with Cressida, but of course Cressida gets swapped in an exchange, where her father Calchas, who has defected to the Greek side, asks for her in exchange for a chosen prisoner of war. Cressida has promised to be faithful to Troilus, but when she gets to the Greek camp, she's immediately seduced or so it seems, by the Greek warrior Diomedes. At one point, Troilus spots this, and from this moment on he abandons any residual love for Cressida and vows to avenge his perfidy, her perfidy and infidelity. Meanwhile, Hector, the greatest of the Trojan warriors, offers to engage in one-on-one combat with the greatest of the Greek warriors. Since Achilles is in his tent, and since Achilles is prideful, Ulysses, also known as Odysseus of the Odyssey, decides to rig a lottery in which Ajax will get the high honors. Of course, Ajax and Hector fight it out until they call a truce. The fighting between Greeks and Trojans resumes until Achilles' lover dies. This brings Achilles back into battle, where he and his gang of Myrmidons kill Hector. This is the beginning of the end of Troy. Okay. And now I'd like to invite the distinguished David Bevington, who is the Phyllis Fay Horton Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus in the Humanities and of the English Language and Literature, Comparative Literature, and the College University at the University of Chicago, where he has taught since 1967, as well as Chair of Theatre of Performance. So welcome, Professor Bevington, to the Letter of Liberty podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Good. And so tell us a bit about the history of Troilus and Cressida, its initial audience and the stories from which this play took the inspiration. You can also give a plot summary of the play if you want. Well, you've given a plot summary in that outline here about the history of the play. It's a very interesting one in that it's... um, it seems not to have been a success on stage. There is even an edition early on, early quarter edition, in which the uh, a notice from the printer, from the pub- publisher, says that the play was never clapper clawed by the by the multitude or uh, subjected to the rigors of theater. Is very taking a very anti-theater position. So it's, it appears to be some question about whether the play was ever performed. Although uh, it may well have been. There are two different endings. That's another complication. And one, a rather more uh, sardonic one, with part Pandarus at the end, making sleazy remarks to the audience, might possibly have been a version for the Inns of Court, which were a group of lawyers and other persons like that in London, who were looking for high-class, more um, more controversial kinds of plays with more satire in them. Or perhaps the one that ends just with Troilus uh, <clears throat> saying he's going to go on with the fighting in a very bitter tone of voice. That one is... Uh, Possibly a version for uh, acted for the public at the public stage, but the play is again, publishing history is just strange because it was um, just not seemingly not received well in its time. Perhaps because it was too experimental. Um, and then later on, <clears throat> in the 18th and 19th centuries, the play disappears from the record of performance. It seems not to have been um, uh, a a successful or uh, a stageable play. Indeed, some in some places at the universities and so on, students were advised against re- reading, even reading Troilus and Cressida, because it was seen as being a, too, um, well, dealing with a slanderous story of uh, seduction and, 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 and surrender of the woman to the man and so on, and then a story of, of uh, 
they're drifting apart under the pressures of war and then the, the, uh, the brutal way in which uh, Achilles and his men, his myrmidons, uh, murder Hector unarmed uh, off the field of battle is another reason perhaps that the play was regarded as too experimental, too avant-garde, something like that. So and Hamlet so kind of kept a balance between the avant-garde and the more traditional expectations, and that that was why it was more popular, I guess, right? Well, neither was popular. It doesn't, doesn't appear as though the stage uh, succeeded even in Shakespeare's own time. But, um So I wouldn't make the difference between popular and, and less popular, uh, uh, but, but uh, at least a version of that would be that the, the ending without Pandarus on stage may have been intended for the public stage, whereas the one that ends it with Pandarus may have been intended for more elite, uh, avant-garde, off-off-Broadway off kind of uh, production for the end of court. That's a speculation, but that has has been suggested as one possible uh, explanation for the fact that the play exists in two different endings as it was published. Fascinating. I mean... And it's fascinating. You said Hamlet was never popular because I initially thought that it was pretty popular at the time because, of course, it's so popular. I didn't say Hamlet. I said Troilus and Cressida was never popular. Okay, so I misheard then. We're talking about Troilus and Cressida. Uh, Hamlet was very popular. Extremely so, yes. It went into multiple editions. There's all the evidence that it was very well received and very popular. Nice. In fact, Hamlet, uh, the, there was an early quarter of Hamlet which seems to have been unauthorized, and that suggests, indeed, a kind of popularity that somebody sort of stole it and brought out an unauthorized published edition because there was so much in demand, so much so that the, the company or somebody decided to publish a, a second quarter, so-called, which uh, straightened the thing and improved the length of the play and gave a more authentic uh, authorized version of the play. And so that's, um, that's another sign of the play. It was, in fact, a real real box office success. Hamlet, not Troilus. So the two of them together are very interesting. Hamlet was a great success. Troilus was not. Yeah. Because it sounds because both are experimental, both seem to be very avant-garde even today. Both are very indite. Yes. Avant-garde, but, but Hamlet gets read in schools all over the place and performed uh, so many times. In fact, well, there are more films of Hamlet than there are of any other play by Shakespeare. That's a film is a popular medium, and, uh, you know, um, some of those uh, film traditions have been seen by large numbers of audiences. So, um, obviously, Hamlet is experimental, if you like, in the sense that it's... Uh, Shakespeare is such a such an innovative writer. It's a very innovative play and, and a remarkable uh, represented enormous growth in his own um, development as a, as a dramatist, but I wouldn't say that it was avant-garde or, or uh, anything like that. Fair enough. Now, there is, a, there's in the play, there's one point at which uh, Hamlet himself is talking to some players, and he says that um, he would, the players show up at Elsinore, and he's interested to see he loves them, he knows players, he's a great theater man himself. And he asked them to do some uh, performances for him and do some readings at the moment. And he chooses a text of a play. He said this was a play that wasn't appreciated in its own time. It was uh, it was not clapper clawed by the palm of the vulgar. And uh, actually, that's a quote from Troilus. But the, it was it wasn't uh, Hamlet was it didn't please the uh, the many, is the way Hamlet puts it. And he 
has them spread a passage or something. It sounds more like uh, Virgil's Aeneid, very rarefied and upscale. So there's a suggestion that Hamlet, since his own tastes are um, high, high level, high uh, culture, and so on. And one point in the play, he's uh, talking about the the, the uh, multitude uh, in the courtyard, the and uh, really sort of slanders them, slanders them with a label, label of being um, multi-headed kind of beast, and uh, um, and uh, so his tastes um, seem to be. Um, very high class, right? But he does seem to invite to suggest his own audience at the Globe Theatre to to enjoin him in in approving a, a great play, namely his own play. Hmm. So since we got a little off uh, on tangent and we started discussing Hamlet, let's get back to Troyles and Cressida. And, right. And how do you think this stands in Shakespeare's oeuvre, especially a long Hamlet, of course, which is in some ways has this erudition style away oh, right. talking about Hamlet again. Well, it's, it's changing a lot. Uh, and performance, after this long um, absence from the stage, entire absence from the stage in the 18th and 19th and much of the 20th century, but it then um, was revived and uh, proved more and more popular. And today in the 21st century, you get a lot of performances of Troilus and Cressida. I mean, it has adultery in it, it has slaughter on the field of battle. There's a suggestive homosexual relationship between Achilles and, and Patroclus, his lover, and um, the very experimental nature of it. This one really is experimental. That goes down very nicely these days, and it's also, of course, very sardonic or even bitter, and it's a it's a, it's a appraisal of war. It's talking about the Trojan War, but it takes the view that probably you can generalize it, that war itself is a chamber of horrors, and cause a lot of misery. Troilus and Cresset are caught up in this, and this ruins their relationship, and so on. So that an anti-war play is obviously likely to be very popular today, so you see quite a lot of Troilus. There's been big ones in New York and London recently. Um, it's um, Actors love to do this play, directors love to do it. But that's after a long period of it's not having much attention. Or really any attention in the 19th century. Yeah, because when I started reading Trails and Cresta this year, I was surprised by how modern it sounded. I felt it was very ahead yeah. of its time. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Hamlet does well, too. I want to keep getting off on Hamlet, but that's, that also does well with the modern audiences. But Troilus is a more modern in that sense you're, you're talking about, exactly. Yeah. And I miss, I'm very fascinated by how it treats Achilles and the Greek heroes like Ulysses, and it's modern yeah. for this day in its sense, because when I was reading Troilus and Cresta for the first time, I kind of felt that this was how a modern work might satirize, say, superheroes in this day and age. And not only that, but we have anxieties about the spy state, spying, and yeah. blackmail, yeah. and a bunch of things, like the providence that's in a watchful state knows almost every grain of Pluto's gold. That's basically, yeah. it's like, we know what you're doing, and we're spying on you. Yep. One thing that's fascinating about this is the the, uh, the Greek generals are indeed seen, seen in the play as, uh, as a pretty moth-eaten, and uh, they're, they're tired and worn out. They're, the battle's not going well. They're quarreling among themselves, and so on. Led a lot of disaffection in the Greek camp. That's not true of Troy. The Trojan officers on the Trojan side tend to be viewed uh, more... Um, Admiringly, uh, Hector is clearly a, a real. If there's a hero in the play, might well be 
colleagues and so on, um, including Aeneas, of course, who was known for two posterities, the one who uh, was the subject of the story of Virgil's Aeneid, and uh, that story about Troy. But uh, Aeneas comes across as a bright and honorable man in the Trojan War, and uh, so, and, and, the, and there's, the play has two scenes of debate between among the generals, and the scene among the uh, Greeks is more disaffected and quarrelsome, and uh, and, uh, manic- and and uh, manipulating, whereas the, uh, the the discussion among the and the Trojan camp is more high-minded, Hector especially. And he has a very serious question to ask, which is why we should be fighting this war for Helen. And she was the wife of a Greek um, patriarch, and why should we take countenance uh, taking away the wife of, of somebody from, uh, you know, to be taking away a, a like that, to taking a, a wife away from her husband and so on. And why, why countenance... Um, well, that's true also about this, that um, Paris in the play, who's there in one scene with Helen, that's a very disaffecting scene. It's a very languid, and they're enjoying life. Uh, but they're sometimes stages, the modern stage, as though you're in a uh, kind of a modern um, play of, of uh, cocktails and, uh, you know, the beautiful life and the, among, the, among the filthy rich and uh, languid and uh, erotic. And uh, Helen is not given a very high reputation in this play, and neither is Paris. So that, obviously, it's a good one in which the play tends to pull the whole Trojan War down. If it's a war fought about a woman, and if that woman is Helen of Troy, then why, this has been asked by a number of people in the play, why risk the lives of hundreds and thousands of men to uh, make up a quarrel about who... who uh, Belong, who, who owns Helen and her love? And uh, that play, that that love relationship itself also played off against Troilus and Cressida, which also becomes a sad one. Yeah, and I'm definitely fascinated again by how Achilles is treated because he's definitely depicted as a vain, bragging, and selfish, and self-centered, yes. and conceited warrior in this play. Mm-hmm. Of course, he had some of these traits in the Iliad, but if you look at the Iliad versus Troilus and Cressida, you'll see a whole difference. And then again, he I, I totally agree, yes. In the Iliad, all those things, he refuses to fight in the war. He's, um, this is a difficulty as the book, as the, uh, as, as the uh, Iliad begins, and it's only with the death of Patroclus he comes back into the battle, but, so but he is the major tragic figure of Homer's wonderful poem, so, you know, his extraordinary dignity. And, of course, Homer's writing as a Greek, whereas Shakespeare is writing uh, from the English point of view, and the English tended to take the Trojan side about the Trojan War. The British, the English, the British, thought of themselves as descended from Troy in terms of their genealogy, from, from Aeneid, in fact, from Aeneas, who, according to Aeneid, leaves the, the burnings of, burning walls of Troy and so on. And then there's a continuing story, not Virgil's himself, but in a continuing story, his grandson, or sometimes a great-grandson, um, goes around um, outside of, out into the Atlantic Ocean around France and so on, and ends up in Britain on the establishing a colony where London will later be established and so on. So 
the history of Britain goes back to the Trojan story. That's partly because the in, in the universities too that the English read uh, Virgil's Aeneid and they didn't know Homer. They didn't really have good texts for this. They didn't know the Greek tragedy either. They couldn't. Uh, students at school they knew a lot of Latin and there were very few people who were, had uh, adequate ancient Greek. So uh, the loyalty to, to um, Troy is, in that sense, understandable. Um, so that's, I think that's one reason that the Greeks are made to look uh, more disreputable than, the, than, say, Hector, and that that, that uh, affects the character of Achilles as well. Um, it's still, you're, you're, it's still the same story. He's disaffected in the war. He has a loving relationship with Patroclus. But uh, especially the business of the death of Hector, that's presented to the play as very dismal business. That Hector is unarmed, Achilles comes with his uh, myrmidons, his armed assistants, and they're ganging up on him and he hasn't a chance. So he's just butchered and then dragged around the walls of Troy and so on in a chariot. So uh, that's pretty much the, uh, the play's comment on what to make of, uh, of, of Achilles. Um, and, of course, Shakespeare had some sources for that, too, not not from Homer, but from medieval accounts of the, of the story of Troy, which were quite uh, legendary and very long, um, by people like John Lydgate. That story, again, gave it, and it's Achilles, it was not the same kind of hero that you get in, in, uh, in, in, in Homer. Shakespeare probably did get to be able to read some Homer. There was a translation... By, by George Chapman, yeah. it came out about the time, shortly before that uh, Hamlet was acted, of the first few books of the, the uh, of the Iliad, and in fact, the character of Thersites um, and the quarrel among the Greek camp. Those are parts of the plays, Troilus and Cressida, where Shakespeare seems to have uh, known um, the Iliad in translation. The story of Troilus and Cressida is not in Homer, and that. But Troilus is mentioned in the Iliad as one of the sons of Priam that died, of course. That's correct. Yes, that's a name that um, was picked up. The story, it's as though um, sometime in the Middle Ages, people who were copying over the story of, uh, from um, Virgil and from Homer decided that a story like this needed a love interest. And they picked out Troilus, I suppose, just to have a name that would be connected with the Trojan War. The name of Cressida is an interesting name, too, because there's no Cressid in the Iliad. But there is a character called Persaida at the start of, which doesn't appear, but in the Iliad, that's a slave captive woman whom Achilles and Agamemnon are fighting over. That's the, that's the subject. They're a great quarrel as the book of the Iliad begins. So she's kind of a composite or made-up character. But the whole story is just added to lengthen the story of the Iliad and to make it more um, romantically interesting. Yeah, that almost um, sounds like uh, how you're going to like take an ancient tale or a historical tale and make it more romantic for a modern holiday Hollywood movie. Exactly. And, and Shakespeare... Now, Shakespeare was not the first person to do that, but he picked up on that and thought it a romantic story, but also, of course, a very very discouraging one about Troilus because it was a very sad account. So, on a side note, I mean, as a 
fan of the Iliad, I'm a big fan of Achilles, so it is fascinating to see how different Shakespeare and Homer, differently Shakespeare mm -hmm. and Homer, treat this great hero. I mean, yeah. of well, course, again, there's it's, some it's, it's, similarities. It's Shakespeare's attitude toward the Greeks in general. You pick that up from his English roots and so on, that, that the Greeks were generally less trusted. Another character that's interesting this way in, uh, in the, this play is uh, Ulysses, or Odysseus, and uh, he's seen as a rather crafty person. The Greeks had a reputation of being cunning and crafty, and uh, Ulysses is a, he has some dignity about him, but he, he is, um, he does play politics. The way he gets Achilles to come back in the war is by when there's a challenge that comes through from Troy by uh, Aeneas comes. I've got a Hector from uh, a challenge from Hector to any Greek officer who wants to say, I, you know, I say my woman, my bride is more beautiful than your your bride or woman. <laughs> and so basic quarrel over women and so on, and uh, that you know, attract that. Challenge is picked up, and the officers on the Greek side have to decide who's going to answer this challenge from Achilles. And Ulysses has the bright idea of, of swinging things so that it won't go to Achilles, who would be normally reckoned to be their leading fighter, but to Ajax, so that Achilles will be jealous about that. And that works. Um, it, that's the reason, finally, that he comes back into the war, that he's, his reputation, he feels, is being tarnished by this and so on. He needs to get back into the fight and prove that he's a Hey, Achilles, that's great tradition. Yeah, it almost seems like Ulysses is like making this rhetoric of the law and order conservatives saying, like, if we don't respect authority, civilization will collapse. And at the same time, yes. he's acting a very... <laughs> that's good, that's good. Very tricky oh, way. Yes. Right. Achilles worries about reputation a lot, and he has reason to, of course. In fact, Ulysses talks to him. That's a fine scene in the play where Ulysses uh, comes to him and says, you know, my lord, uh, uh, but... Um, Time hath a lot in his back. That is, the reputation in time is something that uh, runs out if you don't keep uh, making it bright, and bright, burnished and bright and polished. And uh, if you don't get back in the fight and do something, you're going to be forgotten. Reputations are, are quite uh, fickle and also quite um, transient. They disappear easily if you don't keep at it. And that's, part of, that's, again, I think a part of the reason, an important part of the reason, that Achilles is willing to come back to the fight. But that's presented as a somewhat crass and self-serving yeah. motive, isn't it? Um, it's not the Achilles of the great person of the of Homer's book. I, I Shakespeare hadn't read it. He didn't know what Hector had done, what Homer had done, excuse me, with, with Achilles. And so... Even if he read a little bit at the beginning of the Iliad, he didn't know the whole thing. Uh, and there was no English translation available, and so we have this rather more uh, cutting. But it's something to say about that, too, that Shakespeare is fascinated in this play with reputation in general. It's not just Agamemnon. It's not just Achilles. In general, there is that sense that history is often not very kind to uh, great figures of the past. And if you look carefully at Achilles, at Troilus at Cressida, at Agamemnon, uh, at the war itself, at the death of Priam. There is that heroic story in back of it all, but if you get right down to asking what's going on, it sounds a bit more sordid and disappointing and disillusioning. And the play is really strong on disillusionment. Um, and that's a fine comment about what reputation can do. 
definitely also fascinated by how the play interconnects love and war. You have a love story on the side, you have a war story on the side, but they're yeah. all together. I mean, how is this connected with like Eros and warfare together? Venus and Mars are interrelated gods, as we all know. That's perfect. Yes, I, I, I'm sure the story of Venus and Mars is very much in the back of Shakespeare's mind as he creates this story, and again, he moves it in the direction of a very disillusioning view. That, yeah. But that's, that's, you can also say that about Venus and and Mars. Now, the stories is told by Homer, uh, especially in the in the Odyssey, was that story about their being caught as lovers by her husband Vulcan. Uh, it is a comic story. It's like a sex comedy. Hephaestus is so jealous that he calls in the other gods to see. He catches them in that, the lovers, and hangs them up for the, the gods to come in and laugh at this. And so the gods are mightily amused. So there is that kind of disillusionment, even even that original story. But originally, the, the ideals of Mars and Venus are uh, very archetypal. You've got a, a summation of what beauty is in woman, and then in Mars, the heroic, the muscular, the um, the mighty warrior, and so on. And they're made for each other because a man goes out and fights and protects them, and he's strong, and the woman is yielding, soft and sensual and beautiful, and uh, rewarding him, and also an audience for his greatness as a soldier. And so that's the that's the basis of the most thing in its brighter aspect. But it's a, it's a story that's very easily easily brought down to size, isn't it? And in fact, that was even true back in the ancient classical world. There were more sardonic views of all of this, uh, even some of that in the Odyssey, that uh, they are, after all, adulterous lovers. And is it a case of a man losing his greatness because he's infatuated with a woman and see the woman as a kind of temptress? That 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 way of negatively looking at the story of Mars and Venus goes back to the beginning and it becomes increasingly so as you come down to modern times. Yeah. And going back to love and war, and I also mentioned something about the spy state. On Act 3, verse 3, Act 3, Scene 3, it says, The providence that's in a watchful state knows almost every grain of Pluto's gold, finds bottom in the uncomprehensive deeps, keep place with thought, and almost like the gods do thoughts unveil in their dumb cradles. There is a mystery with whom relation durst never meddle in the soul of state which hath an operation more divine than breath or pen can give expression to. All the commerce that you have had with Troy as perfectly is ours as yours, my lord. And better would it fit Achilles much to throw it on Hector than Polyxena. And you have this sense of, like, we know that you are in love with a Trojan woman, and we found it out because we are connected to the divine. This basically giving, like, a divine ratification for the spy state, while also pointing to the connection of love and war with Achilles, throwing down yeah. Hector, along that you should throw him down rather than Polyxeno. And I'm imagining this is throwing down not only in wartime, but also throwing down a woman during the sexual yes. act itself, right? Good. Very nice. Yes, I, that, I just like that. That's a wonderful place. I think that's when Ulysses is talking to Achilles and trying to give him advice about time and so on. 
would have happened if Shakespeare did get to read the Iliad in the whole version? Do you think that would have changed his approach, or would he have still been satiric? That's a wonderful question. Uh, um, depend when he saw the Iliad. I think unless uh, it happened early on, that he was subjected, it was just a part of their culture, because again, the English preferred the Trojans to the Greeks. They went back to that story. Even when they didn't have the Iliad to read in exactly surprising thing was the irreverence of the whole play rather than the irreverence directed to the Greek generals in particular. Is that the thing? That's true. Right, too. But, but, but that serves his purpose. Another thing, thing we haven't talked about that, that, that speaks to this, this is a place where, as you say, written around right around the turn of the beginning of the 17th century. This is a time when Queen Elizabeth was old and um, only had a very little 
live, and the King James would come in as the new king. It was a time of political and military uncertainties. Not long after the Spanish had attempted to, come, to uh, land an invasion in England, the Spanish Armada in 1588, and uh, so there was there was uh, hard to know how much, but I think there was a fair amount of disillusionment and worry about war and among people in London and so on who would be seeing this this play, and it doesn't come as a complete surprise that way. And one of the things we wanted to talk about, what we didn't, was the inclusion of Thersites as a kind of chorus to this whole play. Sure. I mean, nobody likes Thersites. I don't think I like Thersites no. either, except in a very perverted way where I appreciate a stark character. He feels right. like something that could be very fitting for the 21st century, where he's not yeah. a likable character, but he has so much wisdom to him, a dark kind of wisdom that is very ugly. Yeah. And I think Harold yeah. Bloom made a very fascinating point when he argued that he is, in effect, a negative moralist, which makes yeah. sense to me. I think that's exactly right. The uh, That's another use of Homer. If, when, if Shakespeare probably did have a chance to read books one through six of the Iliad in English translation by Chapman, that does, in books, especially in book two, the one time that Persides shows up in the, in the Iliad, and he's there presented in a very satiric light. He's a pointy-headed little monster that everybody laughs at him because he's such a please. Um, I don't know of a more satirical character in all of, of that great work of the Iliad than, than Persides. He's a, the epitome of what you don't want in a soldier. He's, he's a tattletale, he spreads lies, he gets people feeling disaffected about the war they're involved in. But in, and Homer after has introduced him, he is really then sort of um, showed up for what he is as a, a tattletale and a, and a sleazeball, and he gets laughed at, really sort of laughed out of camp by the generals, and uh, then that problem is more or less resolved that way. Shakespeare gives Thersites a lot more centrality than he has in Homer. He stays right to the end of the play. He's in Berlin there at that big scene in Act Fine when Ulysses escorts Troilus to the Greek uh, camp to where he can watch Diomedes not making pitching woo to Cressida and so on. Ulysses is watching and Thersites is watching them. It's an amazing scene where there's a scene within the scene uh, like that. And uh, Thersites is there as this mordant, um, crabbed, bitter character um, about women, about war, about men in war. And uh, so you don't have to read the play his way, but certainly he offers a very uh, sordid and uh, unattractive picture of war. He's related to somebody else we haven't really talked much about, is Pandarus. Um, yeah. Pandarus is, is the one that somewhat the same. And he, sorry? I mean, Pandarus is the one that satirizes love. Thersites is the one that does war. But in a sense, they yep. do both. Thersites also is yep. anti-lust. And Pandarus, of course, is all famously the pander of the relationship between Charles and Cressides. Her uncle, and he's the one who keeps pushing the idea of, to her of uh, entertaining Charles. It's a question of why Pandarus is so curious to know about that. He seems to be a kind of voyeuristic person who gets his kicks out of watching uh, his niece being wooed by Charles and then finally surrendering uh, to him. Pandarus arranges the bed. He is the pander in that sense of, of enabling this, this uh, seduction to occur. So, um, yeah, he's, he's there, and he's there right at the very end of the play, too, at least, especially in one view of it, one version of it. Uh, 
and he's um, the two Andrus and Persides go nicely together to bring along this lowering of tone about heroic greatness in the past. Yeah, here's here's what he says. As many as be here of Pandas Hall, your eyes half out, weep out, and Pandas fall. Or if you cannot weep, yet give some groans, though not for me, yet for your aching bones. Brethren right. and sisters of the hold door trade, some two months hence my will shall here be made. It should be now, but that my fear is this, some gallant goose of Winchester would hiss. Till then, yep. I'll sweat and seek about for eases, and at that time bequeath you my diseases. Wow. Right. That's the epilogue, which belongs to one version of this play, the one that ends with that, that uh, sort of note when he appeals to the audience. He's talking about venereal disease. Um, he's often portrayed that way in the modern world as himself uh, having a lot of syphilis and uh, rather prophetic character in a way. And things go pathetically for him, too, of course. He's finally dismissed by Troilus as a friend who's done nothing for him except cause trouble. And Troilus hates the fact that he got involved with Cressida and then the whole thing can find that song that Pandarus sings. I want to read it. <laughs> yes. There's a wonderful song. Yeah. Which act is in it? I don't remember it. Oh, uh, act should be in Act 3. Let's see. I have to get my copy open. I'm here, too. Try Act 3. Ah, I found it. Act 3, Scene Good. 1. Love, love, nothing but love, still love, still more. For, oh, love's bow shoots buck and doe. The shaft confounds not that it wounds, but tickles still the sore. These lovers <laughs> cry, oh, oh, they die. Yet that which seems the wound to kill doth turn, oh, oh, to ha, ha, e. So dying love lives still, oh, oh, a while, but ha, ha, ha. Oh, oh, groans out for ha, 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 hey, ho. I mean, it's a weird song. I mean, right. it's still strange even in this right. modern age where we have access to a lot of things. That's right. It's not exactly your very romantic love song. It's, it uh, ain't. It's, no, it's, it's kind of dirty, right? Well, perhaps a suggestion that's what happens in a time of war, that the whole thing becomes so just disgraceful and... Um, you know, one question we haven't talked about is about about mainly about Troilus and Cressida. Oh about, yeah, we forgot about them actually. <laughs> uh, the big question over the centuries has been: Is she to be viewed as a 
kind of a triumph which shows what, what women really are. That's yeah. the more traditional and sexist view, and I think uh, that's very much out of tune with the way we look at it today in the 21st century. The uh, the more sympathetic view towards Cressida is that um, she knows when she's being accorded that her power over Trollis will last as long as she doesn't surrender, that when she gives in her for virginity and becomes a partner of bed, he will treat her as a matter of fact possession, and she will. And that happens. And then it's that that very day, of course, that they surrendered. Ironically, that the news arrives that uh, she's to be traded for Antinor and sent over to the Greeks. Um, and their response to this is very telling. Cressida says, "I will not go." She keeps saying that, "I will not go. I'm not going to do this. My life has been changed. I'm now I've committed myself to." Charles and I, I love him, and he's the center of my existence, and I, I will not go. And Charles is the one who says, I'm sorry, you have to go. And why is that? It's because his brothers have told him that they made this exchange arrangement to get Antinor back, who was a valuable soldier. Uh, they need him on the Greek side, and so on, and trading a woman who was no use in war for one of the generals and so on, that's that's a no-brainer. Of course they're going to say, yes, we've got to do that. They realize this is going to be painful for Charles because they've heard about this affair going on, but they say, that's just too bad. And it's very ironic for Paris to say this, too. Paris is, this is going to be the uh, the benefit of all this. Paris will be able to go on sleeping with Helen of Troy while uh, Charles will have to give up Cressidus. So, but in, in the face of all that, Charles does say, yes, sorry, you'll have to go, so they'll come and see you. But he's the one who uh, forces her to go uh, leave um, Troy for the Greek camp. And uh, that really raises a serious question about who deserted whom. Uh, she does realize, of course, that then she gives up too easily. But then, then the question becomes, what she's supposed to do? She shows up at the Greek camp. She's surrounded by sex-hungry generals. They don't have enough women to go around, of course. Uh, and Diamond, in effect, says, I'll be your protectress. Um, the price will be, of course, that you'll be my mistress, but I will look after you and make sure that you're mine and nobody else gets gets the piece of it, so to speak. And uh, that's the arrangement that's going to be. And she settles for that in a rather matter-of-fact way. She's obviously not in love with Diamond in any, in any sense. But uh, she, she's giving in to the, uh, really, a sort of unavoidable necessity of the case, which, what she's supposed to do. Can she really hold out without being gifted, given to some man? How could she possibly hope to sustain that? So if you can work the thing out that well, she, she is very hard on herself for all of this, but she's she's the more thoughtful of the two. Charles doesn't realize how, how inconsistent he is about these things. So and, he, and she knows the situation. Precisely. And yes. And, and in the beginning... And this, all confirms what her, this all confirms her worst fears. Yeah, uh, that when she surrendered to Charles, the next thing he would let her go. Yeah, and and we see some of these worst fears in the very first soliloquy she says. And though she sees more in Troilus than what Pandarus yeah. is sizing him up to be, here's what she says: "Yet hold I off. Women yeah. are angels wooing. Things won are done. Joy's soul lies in the doing. That she beloved knows not that knows not this." Men prize the thing ungained more than it is, right. that she was never yet, that ever knew love got so sweet as when desired its sue. Therefore this maxim out of love I teach, 
achievement is command. Ungained, beseech. An initiative <coughs> play is hard to get, but eventually they consummate the love. And Troilus <coughs> says something like this. Let me find the words. This is the monstrosity in love, lady, that the will is infinite and the execution confined, that the desire is boundless and the act a slave to limit. And yet, despite these words about love and its anxieties, Cressida has this clearer idea where this is the situation I'm in and this is how I will act so I do not get hurt. Absolutely. Cressida is the more self-knowing, self-aware, self-understanding, um, uh, the more, more of the realist. And uh, and that's one reason she's so sardonic about everything at first. But then when she surrenders to Troilus, it's because she finally decided that she actually loves him. And uh, at the, so that the moment of surrender is very precious to her, even though she knows. And the next morning she says, I knew it was going to happen. As soon as I, we spent the night together, you would just walk out on me the next morning. And because he does that, he gets up, and I'm sorry, I have to go talk to my brothers about what's going on in the war, and so on. And she says, oh, there you go. This is what I expected. So she's also the most, therefore, the, not only self-aware, but she's the one who can predict what will happen. And where the Trellis never can. She knows much more than he does. And yet her reputation seems to be that she is the example of the unfaithful woman. And I haven't read Chaucer's Troils and Crusade yet, but is she depicted as the unfaithful woman? Of course, the narrator from what I've heard, seems to be very ambiguous about this, but, I mean, actually, Chaucer seems more ambiguous about this, but the narrator seems to really like Crusade. Yes, absolutely. She's, um, you know, I think, you know, I disagree with all that entirely. She, um, that's another one of these examples that we've been talking about, about is the, the decline of reputation. In fact, there's a wonderful scene where the night before they surrender, when Brandis has them together, Trevisan says, Trella says, well, I'll be, to them, for all times, I'll be the true lover. And she says, well, I guess I'll be the fallen woman then, won't I? Pandora says, I guess I'll be the pander. <laughs> it's a wonderful passage. That's very uh, so true. she that, sees the future happens. more clearly, and this is what happens. That, that people go back to the story, and it's no longer as, as bright and beautiful and touching and tender as it was at the time. It turns out to be, you go to stereotypes. That she becomes the type of fallen woman, and... Charles, the type of the trusting, victimized male, but that's seen from a male, very male point of view, and so on. In which women are the betrayers; they're the the wrong one who wrongs, and we're the one who are wronged, and so on. Men want to think that way, but the play suggests that's uh, that's the, a man man's problem to think that way. Yeah, and. One of the things I think that Troilus and Cresta has to offer us 21st century readers and theater goers is that it's very modern, of course, and that it's not conventionally tragic in the sense that we understand tragedy like in Hamlet right. or King Lear or Macbeth or Othello. And, yep. of course, it has this very peculiar fusion of high culture and these low, yep. vulgar jokes. Yep. And I think it's very suited to 21st century readers who yep. want to have a That's high beautiful. culture but at the same time want to keep their dirty jokes. <laughs> right. Another way we can put this too, it's a problem in terms of genre. Is the play a tragedy or what? Um, it's a tragedy in that the, the play represents the death of Hector and Patroclus, especially Hector. It's a, it's a history play because it's dealing with the story of history, history of the greatest war of all ancient times, of all civilization. And it's a kind of comedy. It's a black comedy, a bleak, bitter, very 20, 21st century comedy of the absurd. Uh, so wonderful. And 
reflected in the fact that in the 1623 folio, the first big collection of all of Shakespeare's plays by his colleagues, called the First Folio, that it's stuck in between the comedies and histories, or the histories and tragedies, I think, and uh, but without pagination, and it was put in at a late moment, not knowing whether the, the hit, that book is classified as comedies, histories, tragedies. What are you going to do with Troilus' Crescent? If they put it in between with no pagination, uh, it's a way of reflecting the fact that they didn't know what to do with it uh, to, in terms of its genre. That's one of the ways it's most ex- experimental. Yeah. And I think more students should take a look into it, see, to perform it, to read it, because I think they will really like it. When I mean oh, students, I mean college students. Right. I agree. No, no, it wouldn't be a good high school play. <laughs> know, maybe take uh, a look into it in high school for optional reading, you know. Okay, right. I, I think they'd love it, especially if they could see a production, good production. Yeah. And the way its characterization works, it's not necessarily caricatures, but... Neither is it the deep characterization we might see in Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, or even some of the great comedies. As well, I guess I would want to question that. It seems to me the study of Cressida and her the subtlety and the complexity of her uh, her difficult choice and sense of who she is and being victimized by war, I think that's a very deep uh, personal study uh, with as much subtlety and complexity as one could Hope to find, partly because uh, in back of it is, is Chaucer's Troilist Crusader, which does the same thing. It's Chaucer's most amazing psychological novel, uh, mainly about Cressida and about what, and he makes a very sympathetic case for her. As somebody really to want to want to get to know because she's more complicated than you think she's going to be. Yeah. So I think this is a good time to wrap up the show. Thanks well, for coming thank over. you. This great, great pleasure to talk. I have, wish you all the best of luck with this project. I'm glad you're doing this. Thank you.